Excellent. Thank you to the band for leading us this evening, and a good evening to all of you, and a happy Easter to everyone, if I haven't said that to you yet today. I really had a, a good afternoon with all of the wonderful gospel good news of the cross and the empty tomb that we heard this morning ringing in our ears all afternoon, all evening, and hopefully for a long, long time to come. This morning with Matty, we were once again reminded of the really, real good news of Jesus' real resurrection from the grave, his triumph over death, the scenes that followed, scenes of uncertainty, scenes of shock, but euphoric scenes of the solid and promised hope of forgiveness and eternal life as Jesus stood before Mary, stood before his disciples and would go on to stand before others. He broke the tomb in glory as we've just sung. Death could not hold the one who authored life. And as Matty mentioned this morning, after Jesus appeared to many and then ascended to the Father's side, word begins to spread around the area. People 2,000 years ago are placing their faith and their trust in this Jesus, asking him to forgive them of their sins, trusting in him for eternal life, for their own resurrection from the grave one day. And then telling others who don't yet know Jesus the news about Jesus. Churches are appearing, local gatherings of people who believe in this Jesus, who believe in this God. They're meeting weekly to sing together, to share God's word with one another, to scatter throughout the week and then tell as many people as they possibly can all about this Jesus, all about who he is, all about what he has done, all about his life his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the promise one day of his return. But then just as the sun sets on the empty tomb that Easter Sunday, so the sun begins to set on the lives of believers within each of these churches. Jesus hasn't yet returned, but men and women who are committed followers of Jesus pass away. What does that mean for them? Have they missed out on Jesus' promises of eternal life? I thought that was the whole deal of the empty tomb. Will they miss out on Jesus' promises if they are not alive when Jesus returns one day in the future? Is the hope of the believer who dies misplaced hope? When we lose someone around a church family, is our hope misplaced? What is their fate? These questions are very similar questions to questions that are being asked in a church 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica, a church to whom the Apostle Paul writes a letter 2,000 years ago. So turn with me in your Bibles to page 987. 987. We're going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And as we all turn there now in our Bibles, let me pray for us and let me ask God for his help as we study these words together. Father, as we read these words, please would you help us not only to understand their meaning, but would you shape us to encourage one another as we study them together. Help us to know the certainty that comes with 
all of the promises that you have made to us, the certainty that comes with the empty tomb of Jesus. Help us to listen carefully as we hear of the assurance of his return and the eternal life that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Paul writes these words. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We read in Acts that Paul was only able to spend a few weeks with this fledgling church in Thessalonica before he was chased out of town by some pretty aggressive local church leaders. Paul would have loved to have spent more time with them, but he wasn't able to before the local believers smuggle him out of town for his own safety. And as Paul writes to them, the first three chapters of this letter are brimming with pastoral pride, brimming with gospel warmth from Paul towards a church which received the word of God in the midst of much affliction, much opposition. A church which turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. A church which waits for the return of the Son of God from heaven. And in his love for this church, Paul agonizes over their spiritual health and well-being. And so he sends Timothy, he sends one of his co-laborers, one of his gospel partners, back to Thessalonica to see how things are going, to establish them in their faith, to exhort them in their faith. We're not really sure how long Timothy was with them for, but his report back to Paul is one that brings Paul real encouragement and gospel pride. He so desperately wants to go back and spend more time with the church in Thessalonica to supply what is lacking in their faith, to continue to teach them the good news of the gospel. But in the meantime, he writes to them concerning just one or two pressing matters for the church. See, his desire for the church is actually there in chapter 4, verse 1. He pleads with them that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, do so more and more. It's there again in verses 9 and 10 of the same chapter. Chapter 4, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. See, the church is already a church that loves one another, 
And Paul is helping them to do it more and more. Paul is helping them to see new ways in which this church family can love one another. And in light of the questions the church has raised about the loss of loved ones and what the implications of that are, Paul's answers are not just an opportunity to teach them gospel truth, but to encourage them to help and support one another. Paul isn't just speaking gospel facts. He is helping them to develop gospel love within the church. And Paul feels like the church should love one another in a brotherly way by helping one another to handle grief in a gospel manner. To handle the loss of loved ones in a gospel way. See, we rightly see Easter as an opportunity to introduce others to Jesus, perhaps more easy than it would be at another time of the year. It's an opportunity for them to gaze into the empty tomb of Jesus for themselves, for us to ask them what they think of the claims of Christianity. But as those who believe in Jesus, one way for us to celebrate the Easter story, one way for us to apply the truth of the empty tomb to our own hearts, is to help one another to deal with death. And Paul offers the church in Thessalonica two big truths that will help them to understand the resurrection of the dead, two big truths that will help them to understand the return of Christ, two big truths that will help them to clear up any misconceptions that they might have, and to collectively give them a genuine gospel hope for the future. They're going to appear on the screen to my left, to your right, as I go. Here's the first thing for us to see. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, don't be confused, don't be hopeless, we will all rise again just as Jesus did. Don't be confused or hopeless. We will rise again just as Jesus did. For Paul, because Jesus has blazed a trail for every single believer to follow, there is absolutely no need for the believer to grieve death hopelessly. There is no need for the believer to grieve the death of another believer hopelessly. Because the Christian is united to Jesus, his journey, Jesus' journey, is our journey. He sets the pattern and we follow in his footsteps. And just as he has broken through death and rose again to eternal life, he promises to take all of us who are in him with him. As Jesus died and rose again, so will the Christian die and rise again. And that's why Paul so deliberately chooses the word sleep in these verses. When Paul uses that word sleep, he's not trying to diminish or sugarcoat the painful reality of death. He's not trying to pull the wool over our eyes to make it easier for us to speak about death without actually having to use the word. Instead, Paul uses the word asleep not to give us a less accurate understanding of what is to come but a more accurate understanding of what is to come. A deeper, fuller understanding of what will happen to each and every single one of us who trusts in Jesus one day. It's exactly the same word that Jesus uses when he meets Jairus' daughter in chapter 5 of Mark and says the child is not dead, but is sleeping. See, because of Jesus' death on the cross, 
the believer will not taste death for himself or herself, but will only sleep. Because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the believer too will not stay dead forever, but will one day rise for eternity. And everything that we're celebrating this morning, everything that we're celebrating as Christians this Easter, it forms such a stark contrast. The perspective is in such stark contrast to the world in which we live, to the rest of mankind, which, according to Paul in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, grieves without hope. It's easy to see the great difficulty that the rest of mankind faces in their grief. A quick search online will give you plenty of tips for dealing with death, how to minimize the mourning, how to limit the lamenting. But any hope that they offer is either rooted within yourself or rooted in the past. Articles from psychologists, articles from doctors will tell you that these things will become easier to deal with over time. Or they'll say that you can extend the existence of the individual that has died as you remember them, as you retell stories of times that you were with them. And whilst there's some truth to those statements, they fall far, far short of what Paul offers the church here in Thessalonica. See, Paul reminds the church, verse 14, that their lost loved ones have died but are now with God, as safe as they ever have been, waiting to wake from their sleep, waiting to return with Jesus. And so rather than talking about a loved one smiling down on us from above, a much more honest, a much more believable, a much better understanding is that of the gospel that death is the last enemy, as Paul will describe it in another letter, that it really is something that we should grieve, but not hopelessly. See, Paul presents the church with the gospel perspective of mourning, hopefully, because the Christian knows that the dead believer will not miss out, but is only sleeping. Now, Paul is not forbidding any grieving, He is not forbidding any mourning. Paul would say that grieving is a necessary, important part of the Christian walk. Jesus did it for his friends when they died. Paul would want all of us to feel at ease when we grieve the loss of a loved one with others. Paul is not demanding a stiffness or a resilience in these moments, but he reintroduces the church to the reality that every single believer will rise again just as Jesus did. And that means that no Christian should be confused, no Christian should be hopeless, but instead should grieve with certainty and with hope. And you can imagine someone objecting to this as wishful thinking, perhaps concluding that it's something that helps us as Christians to deal with the inexplicable grief that we all face when someone that we love dies. But the truth is that the confidence, the assurance, the certainty that the Christian can have in these moments is as real and as firm as Jesus' tomb is empty. 
If Jesus really did rise from the dead, as all the evidence suggests, as millions of people have believed and passed on through the generations, if every Christian believer really is only actually merely asleep, then I can really grieve with hope. I will miss them, but I will see them again. That's why it's so important that we read of the empty tomb regularly. Not just the Easter time, but we go back time and time again to the eyewitness testimonies, to God's life-giving word, to see afresh that what we believe is not just a fairy tale, but is as reliable and good as our God is. So we grieve in the face of death, but the empty tomb shows and teaches us daily that we do not grieve hopelessly. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica and says to us, we grieve in the face of death, but the empty tomb will not allow us to sink into despair. Instead, there's a much better story to believe. A true story. A much better story to share with one another and with others. And so that's the first thing Paul wants us to know this evening. Don't be confused. Don't be hopeless. We will rise again from our sleep, just as Jesus rose from the grave. And the second thing for us to understand from Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica this evening is that we are to encourage one another, for Jesus is coming back to take us to eternity. Do encourage one another. Jesus is coming back to take us to eternity. We've just been told not to grieve hopelessly in the face of death because our dead brothers and sisters are asleep and safe in Christ. And now Paul spells out further implications of Christ's inevitable return. And whilst these verses don't answer every single question that we might have about the return of Jesus, they do bring us plenty of courage, comfort, and spiritual sustenance to keep going in our trust. Jesus' return will be an unmissable event. Verse 16 reads, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. It's the unmissable celebration of fulfilled promises that were made by God. Promises that the king would return, that there would be an end to the groaning of the fallen creation in which we live. It's the unmissable inauguration of a renewed creation where all of these things that haunt us in this age, in this day, sin, sickness, death, disease, will be a very, very distant memory. It's an unmissable coronation where King Jesus takes all of the glory that we can muster as his people. We sing, we praise him for his majesty, his kingdom, the rule and the reign and the victory that he has won for his own glory and for his people, for us, for you, for me. We read that on that day, Jesus doesn't hang back. Jesus doesn't send somebody to come and get us. He doesn't return begrudgingly. He doesn't come to take us to the new creation reluctantly. He himself descends and the dead will rise first to a new creation body. Their souls will have gone to be with Jesus when they sleep in this world. 
the old body of the old order and the old world will have returned to the ground. But when Jesus descends, there is a, a meeting or a union between the souls of asleep believers and their new bodies fit for eternity in a brand new world. We've not to think of our eternity as being ethereal and floaty. The prototype, if you like, for us to look at when it comes to our new creation bodies is the new creation body that Jesus has when he rises from the tomb. It's a physical body, one which can be touched, one which eats. So will be the new creation bodies which will be raised with those who have died, who have fallen asleep. That's the first union or meeting that takes place. There's two further meetings or unions for us to look forward to in these verses. The first one is between the Christians that are alive at the time of Jesus' return and all the dead that have fallen asleep and gone to be with Jesus. That's there in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. They'll rise first, those who have fallen asleep, and then those who are alive will witness that with their own eyes and then be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. And there will be so many believers for us to reunite with, so many personal interactions for us to fulfill, so many smiles, so many embraces for us to exchange, so many missed hours to spend with one another. I imagine it'll be like those lovely little interactions that you see occasionally at an airport or a train station when somebody is waiting for somebody that they know to walk through the gate or to walk off the train. Those lovely little moments when separated loved ones run towards one another, smiling that the other one has made it through the wait to meet them again. And it's not going to be for a fleeting moment. It's not going to be a snatched conversation There will be no sinking feeling when the kids need to leave. There will be no tears that roll down our faces as we drive away from our parents' house. This is an eternal reunion, one that does not end. Not then to mention the millions of believers throughout the years that we haven't yet met. The time that we'll want to spend getting to know them, hearing them tell their stories of God's grace and victory in their life. But there's an even greater meeting, an even greater union that will take place. Verse 17 again. We will meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. See, as good as it will be to meet one another again, I suspect all of our eyes collectively, gladly, will be fixed once more on the Lord Jesus, for we will be with him forever. No Christian will miss out on this. Those who are asleep, those who are alive at the time of Jesus' return, not a single Christian will be left out. It's not the important Christians that go first. No Christian will be forced to wait and pay penance for their sins. None of them will be left feeling on the fringes. There will be no need to worry about being ejected from his presence again because of sin. There will be no need to worry about death cutting short the time that we'll have with one another and with Jesus. Instead, we will always be with him as his victory swallows all of these things up once and for all. 
And so as we close our time together this evening, the appropriate response for the church in Thessalonica and for us here in St. Andrews is right there in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, these are gospel words that are written by Paul to steady our own hearts. But they're words that are primarily written for us to relay and repeat to one another. They're words that are primarily written for all of us collectively as a church family to speak into the lives of one another as we face up to our own death and the deaths of others. Mourning is something that no Christian does on his or her own. The empty tomb at Easter is not an event that we can ever celebrate on our own, says Paul. He means for us to speak of this great day, to speak of the return of the Lord to one another, to encourage one another with these words. He means for our eyes to linger on the coffin for only so long before other Christians help us to raise our eyes to the empty tomb, to fix our gaze on the hope on the horizon that is to come when Jesus returns. And so we live on in the present, encouraging one another to turn our eyes onto the new creation. With our gospel gaze set on the hope and the certainty of the new creation bodies that await every single believer in this room, the wonderful eternal reunion with every believer, and the wonderful eternal presence of the Lord among us always, forever. Often, I find myself unsure as to what to say to somebody when they have experienced the loss of a loved one. I'm sure you understand what that's like. I'm sure you've been there yourself. Words seem to fail us. We're not really sure what to say. I think there's real wisdom in allowing ourselves to steep in the silence of loss. I think there's real wisdom in the tears and in the grieving that ensues when a believer falls asleep. Death is the great enemy we will miss that person. These are gospel truths. Having said that, I've found tremendous strength and encouragement in past weeks, months, and years in having others lovingly and sensitively pointing me towards Jesus' resurrection, lovingly and sensitively pointing me towards Jesus' return. People have said to me things like, you know, Scott, those who die in Christ are safe as safe as they ever could be. Those who are alive when Jesus returns, well, they're going to meet everybody that have fallen asleep, has fallen asleep over the years. They have encouraged me with these words, exactly like Paul would want the church to. They've encouraged me with these words that we've read and studied. Can I encourage us as a church family to do the same? To encourage one another with these words that we've read and studied this evening, that would be a brilliant way for us to celebrate Jesus on Easter weekend this year and for the rest of our lives. Let me stop there. I'm going to pray and ask God to give us the courage, the strength, and the motivation and the sustenance to keep on encouraging one another with these words that we've looked at.
Father, we thank you for the genuine gospel privilege of being able to grieve as those who have hope. Father, we thank you that Jesus died for our sins and rose again to eternal life. And we thank you that when he returns, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We will be caught up with them in the air and we will always be with the Lord. And so, Father, please help us to encourage one another with these words. Help us to look at loss and grieving and mourning through a gospel perspective, through a gospel lens. Help us, Father, to grieve and mourn well, but to point one another to the empty tomb of Jesus. And help us to do that, Father, as a church family that earnestly seeks for the spiritual growth of others around about us. Stop us from trying to do this on our own. And help us to do it with the Christian believers, the brothers and sisters that you have given us. Help us to do these things more and more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.